Welcome to the Mets Pod. On today's show, we discuss Jeff McNeil's extension, the value, the term, and why Pete Alonzo might be next. Later on, we look at the top five Mets prospects per Keith Law and how Joe's thoughts compare. As always, we close out the show answering your mailbag questions. So subscribe to the Mets Pod at Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can watch on SMY's YouTube or wherever you get your shows. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Mets Pod. I'm your host, Connor Rogers, joined as always by my co-host, Joe DeMeo. We have exciting news to kick off the top of today's show as the Mets agreed to a four-year, $50 million extension with their star second baseman, kind of a do-it-all player, batting champ in Jeff McNeil. Joe, let's bring you in here right off the top. This felt like not only good news, but good value for the Mets, for a team that has paid big money to the external free agent market all over the last two years, they take care of one of their own. It's about time the Mets get some value on a contract extension here. It happens a lot in Atlanta, but doesn't seemingly happen here in New York. But no, this is a great uh, value for the Mets. Obviously, we know Jeff McNeil won the batting title and not only won the NL batting title, but led all of baseball in batting average this year. And with the shift being banned or tempered down, whatever whatever term we want to use, I think that should only be advantageous to batting average. And I think McNeil's going to be a guy with his bat-to-ball skills, his patience at the plate. It's a guy that I think that is going to age well. Um, his versatility is obviously a plus. He could be a second baseman. He could play either corner outfield spot. You could throw him at third base if you have to and be able to get that for $12.5 million a year AAV is fantastic work by the Mets. And uh, yeah, good good for Jeff McNeil. He's getting $50 million. A massive bounce back for McNeil last year, who, Joe, when you look at the numbers, in July, he batted 208. Every single other month of the season, he batted well over 300. In August, 385 with a 973 OPS. September and October, 357 with an 878 OPS. McNeil was one of the guys down the stretch that was phenomenal for this team and you have to wonder where they would even be last season without him just his consistency in the lineup uh the versatility you can really bat him through the entire order in any spot you can move him around the the infield or the outfield and it feels like you get plus defense wherever you play him so for the mets here i think a lot of people were surprised at the number and there's a lot of good details on this contract extension from ken rosenthal in an article from the athletic We've talked about this on this show for a while. McNeil was in a very you know, interesting scenario because of a player that uh, made his MLB debut a little later in life. He would not be a free agent until his age 33 season. So he would have been an older free agent, which definitely was an incentive for him to get a deal done now. Uh, and there's also a fifth year option for the Mets on this deal that instead of 50 mil total could take it to about 63.75. So the Mets have the power in that situation. McNeil obviously viewed as a guy that his game is not power and speed. His game is based on contact. And when you look around the players in baseball that continue to produce almost up until their late 30s or 40 years old, it's guys with bat-to-ball skills. So clearly an exciting um, a job done by the Mets here to pivot away from the external market for a second and look towards the long-term future. There's also one nugget in here that I wanted to throw at you, Joe, that I particularly found pretty interesting from Rosenthal that had 
you know, this was off the record, but he said McNeil had told teammates he would sign an extension if the Mets offered him $50 million. Uh, so McNeil was clearly a guy that he had a number. It wasn't a crazy number. He wanted to get to it. I think the bigger thing here, Joe, is he wanted to be here. And that's a really good sign going forward in an offseason where it felt like a guy in Jacob deGrom had very little interest in staying here. A guy like Jeff McNeil sends the exact opposite message. I wonder where he got 50 million from. Like what made him pick that number? Was he just like, a good, <laughs> it, it's a, it's, it's a good round number. I think 50 million sounds about good enough, Me too. Uh, but, but I, I'm in, I'm in, but I think it, it definitely shows that the Mets are a place that players want to be. Brandon Nimmo came back to the Mets. Granted the Mets, you know, went a year or two long or, or whatever, but I'm sure Brandon Nimmo could have signed for seven years at more AAV or six years at more AAV on the market somewhere else. And he wanted to return to the Mets. I think the Mets are truly becoming that destination, not just for external players, but also for internal players to want to remain. And it's a credit to Steve Cohen, Billy Epler and the Mets to set the precedent. Cause obviously we talk about the prospects and how they want to be a sustainable winner and Alvarez is coming and Beatty is coming and Mauricio Vientos, Jet Williams, Kevin Parada, you name it. All these prospects are working their way up the chain. Now you're setting a precedent that if you come up to the Mets and you perform here, you can get rewarded by this franchise. Whereas you look at prospects like on the Reds or the Rays or guys like that, they know that they're getting called up. They're going to spend their league minimum years with the team, and then they could be available for trade at any point after that. The Mets are proving that they're going to be willing to take care of their own, which is a great sign for the long term. It sends a great message to the clubhouse, right? And I think a lot of the eyes now turn, not only from the fan base, but probably he's feeling the same way, to Pete Alonso. And Pete Alonso is a guy that is not set to hit free agency until 2025. His arbitration years are still ahead of him, obviously, under an arbitration contract for 2023. The same would apply in terms of team control for 2024. Alonzo coming off a season where he hit 40 home runs. He was a 4.4 war player, wins above replacement. He once again had an OPS of 869 off a year where he had an OPS of 863. So Alonzo uh, becoming a, uh, he is an established, consistent power force in the National League right now. He seems to be getting better at first base as the years go on, which is a huge development. Joe, I have to throw kind of a difficult one to you because these things can be unpredictable. I don't sense there's any pressure on the Mets to get something done. But one, do you think they do try to get something done with Pete uh, this spring? Or do you think this is a can they can kick down the road and there won't be any hard feelings from Alonzo being he's a little bit of a younger player than McNeil? I think... Pete is much less incentivized to take an extension from the Mets now. Uh, I think, like you said, he's younger. He's proving what he is. That doesn't mean he doesn't want to stay with the Mets, but there's nothing wrong with getting closer to free agency or seeing free agency. I mean, he's just a couple years away from it. So, I mean, I'm sure if the Mets come in with an aggressive offer, I'm sure he'd listen. Uh, but you want to look in the, I don't know, low to mid 20s per year or so on Alonso. Look at what? Matt Olson, he's probably somewhere between Matt Olson and Freddie Freeman as far as kind of what you're looking at contractually. Uh, so if you're Alonzo, it's different than McNeil, who, like you said, was would be turning 33 as a first-time free agent. He's had an injury past. 
So let's go ahead and you know lock in the 50 million guaranteed. I think Alonzo is looking at a good payday. Uh, I think the Mets want to keep him. I think he wants to stay here. But from a sheer business standpoint, I don't think there should be much motivation from Pete's side to sign a contract extension now. But you bet if I'm Billy Epler, I'm trying. Yeah, so Pete just turned 28 in December. He's under arbitration for this year and the following year. So he will be a 30-year-old free agent, which a power-hitting 30-year-old first baseman, they don't, they're not looked at a guy that's all legs or defense in the middle infield. You think that power will age pretty well. You'll at least get five really strong years out of him after that. And then you look at the first base market. The outlier is Joey Votto, who is on a 10-year, $225 million deal. That deal doesn't stack up with the rest of the first base market, and you nailed it, Joe. I mean, you look at the next three, they're kind of comparable. Matt Olson is on an eight-year, $168 million deal. Freddie Freeman is on a six-year, $162 million deal. And then you have Paul Goldschmidt, who's on a five-year, $130 million deal. And then the rest of the contracts after that are all below $60 million in total. So Alonzo is going to fall probably between Olson, Freeman, and Goldschmidt somewhere in that area. And like you said, if you're Pete Alonzo, you had a really good season, right? You hit 40 home runs, but you've also had a year where you've hit 53. If you're Pete Alonzo, you're looking at the guy across town that just went on a power bender that we haven't seen in baseball since when. Uh, and you think, hey, what if I do make a run at a 60 home run season? What does that do for the value of the contract rather than rushing it now? So I'm of the belief that th nothing will get done this spring and there's nothing wrong with that. It would be a pleasant surprise if they found a mutual common ground, the Mets and Alonzo's camp. But I think the bigger takeaway, Joe, is under this ownership, under this regime, especially after the McNeil extension, because all the money they've given out in the external market, it seems like there's always got to be something, right? Everybody has to pick at something. And I feel like people quietly start to pick it. Well, when are you going to take care of your own guys that you drafted, developed, brought up here and had success uh, for playing for pennies on the dollar at the time? Now that the McNeil extension is done, you feel comfortable that no matter what happens, it will get done with Alonzo. It's not an if, it's a when. Yeah, that's definitely how I feel. And even if it rides out into free agency, so after the 2024 season, if Pete sees open free agency, I think he wants to be a Met for life. I think the Mets want him to be a Met for life. It just, it comes down to business and, you know, what, what contract is going to work for him. And yeah, like you said, I think you're looking in the range of where Olsen Freeman and uh, and Goldschmidt are at. And that's probably your guideline for what an Alonzo extension could look like because the reality is right-handed hitting first baseman are really not the most valuable assets in the sport, right? Like they're finding right-handed hitters that could hit home runs, not crazy hard. So I think Alonzo will get a good payday one day from the Mets and you know we'll, we'll just see when that is. Absolutely. And the last order of business at the top of the show, we do our typical uh, update on the offseason. The bullpen market has not moved since we last recorded. Chapin is still out there. Britain, I believe, is still out there. I mean, across the market, that kind of tier of reliever has not moved. And Joe, I think it kind of backs up your thought from last week of as much as these guys, these guys are good, the Mets have money. There's no denying that. I mean, look at the deal they gave Correa and all that money went right back to them they might like the flexibility of the bullpen options. Like you said, where they don't want to stack a bullpen where it's all this guaranteed money. Uh, and there's really nobody to move up and down. And I saw you even respond on Twitter at some point that when people bring up the idea of Drew Smith, Drew Smith is a guy the Mets would like to see in an elevated role. And we've seen a lot of flashes of that as well. So 
I won't call the Chafin dream dead yet, but it feels like something would have gotten done with this tier of the relief market by now for the Mets if it was absolutely going to happen. Yeah, I, I lean towards there's not going to be another reliever added, and and I think that's okay. Uh, like you mentioned, I tweeted last week, the Mets used 31 pitchers in 2022 to get through the season. A lot of those are relievers that go up and down, and they had some starters get hurt, so they had starters come through. And Darren Ruff actually pitched, believe it or not, so he was number 32 uh, that appeared in a game. But you need those optional relievers to get through 162 games of a baseball season. You need guys that can go up and down. And like you said, Drew Smith has options. But I don't think the Mets want to look at Drew Smith as one of the up and down guys. They want him to take that step, that next step forward. But the rest of the guys on the 40-man roster, other than Steven Nagosik and the veterans like Diaz, Adovino, and, and Robertson, all have minor league options. So I think you could see the Mets maybe add another reliever, one that has minor league options. I don't have a good name for you, but I think they're, they're ready to go with this bullpen. I think they have enough talent on the lower end that they can afford to you know, take the chance on these guys. The analytics staff identified Steven Ridings and identified John Curtis and guys like that that could make an impact in this bullpen. Let's also face the reality. like If they signed an Andrew Chafin, let's just say, which if they do, not going to complain about it, but you're signing a guy that's going to be the fifth guy in your bullpen, something like that. And with the Steve Cohen tax being 90% of every dollar or 90 cents for every dollar, like if you sign Andrew Chafin for $8 million a year, you're basically signing Andrew Chafin for over $15 million a year. And I don't think the value really adds out. And you go in with Curtis and, and those guys, you also have Zach Green, the rule five pick. And when you get to the trade deadline, if you need to add something to the bullpen, you do. Uh, I just think it might be a good idea to at least go to camp and see what you have. And some of these guys might last in the spring training. Like, would it shock you if Zach Britton didn't have a job on March 1st? And then maybe the Mets come calling because there's an injury or something. So it, I think that's the right path forward. All right. So I said at the in you know at the open of the show we are going to get into some prospect talk today. It is that time of year where MLB Pipeline has dropped their top 100, and then Keith Law, who has been doing this for a very long time, now at the Athletic, he dropped his top 100. And Joe, there's a nice trend here this year where, and it's been getting better every year for a long time. It felt like the Mets were so barren in terms of having top 100 prospects on all of these lists. And now you go into a year where you look at Keith Laws, which released very recently. They have five in the top 100. And it's very interesting to see the guys, the two guys that have shown up on top 100 lists as well that were traded from the Mets system. We knew about Pete Crow Armstrong because he was a first round pick um, who is now with the Cubs organization. But when you look at Andy Rodriguez in the uh, Joey Lucchese trade for the Pirates, he's had a meteoric rise as well, which speaks to I think the Mets evaluation process, whether it's in international free agency or the draft process, but the most important aspect is the guys that are still in their system. Number seven was Francisco Alvarez. 31 was Brett Beatty. Kevin Prada already sits in the top 50 at 44. 68 was Alex Ramirez, somebody that we've talked about on the show for a while that has all the traits in the world and you just want to see it come together. And there were a lot of flashes of that last year for Brooklyn, which is really, really exciting for Ramirez. And then 87, Ronnie Mauricio still sneaks into the top 100. 
especially after a fall ball season where he showed a lot of promise. So, Joe, is there anything that's notable or surprising to you with this list besides the fact that I introduced it with, hey, the Mets got five guys in the top 100. That feels like a good sign of things going forward. It is a good sign of thing. It is a good sign of things going forward, especially when you look at Jet Williams is probably right outside the top 100. A guy like Blade Tidwell could potentially be a top 100 guy in the not too distant future. Um, I'd say I'm surprised that Ronnie Mauricio cracked the top 100 list. I think when you look elsewhere, it's not on the list, and I don't think many places look at him as being particularly close to being on the list. Uh, but Law believes in the power, saying it's a 30 home run bat, which wouldn't shock me. Um, he's a big, strong kid with good, good wrists, strong forearms. Really can get to the ball from both sides of the plate. Uh, the defensive positioning is something we're gonna have to figure out. And you know, Keith seemed to indicate it's gotta be a, a third baseman or maybe a second baseman. And you know, maybe he's the biggest second baseman in baseball history. Uh, I'd, I'd like to see that, but. I'm interested to see what they do with Mauricio this spring, uh, because to me, he's probably not a top 100 guy. And that, that's not a diss. Um, I think there's pl there's been plenty of non-top 100 prospects that end up impactful big leaguers. Uh, but I've talked about him quite a bit uh, you know, on this show and saying how you know I think he might just be like a Javi Baez light offensively, where he's just not going to get on base at a high clip. It's just not a part of his game. But can he trim the strikeouts down can he be more selective when he's at the plate so that way he could really tap into that power and then of course uh kevin parada we could touch on him really quickly i think he's kind of i think law might even be the low man on him i think he was top 40 for within the top 40 for mlb pipeline uh, so there's a reason kevin parada was talked about as being a top five pick in the 2022 draft he fell to the mets at 11 and uh, it's a credit to that front office and scouting department for being willing willing to make that pick. And when you mentioned Crow Armstrong and Andy Rodriguez, that's a credit to them for signing them. Now let's see the Mets do a better job of self-evaluation and learn who to and who to not trade. That's, I mean, that's something that Brian Cashman has been so good at forever, which is Epler's, you know, former guy that he worked under. One of Cashman's best traits is knowing who to deal when and who not to deal. So if the Mets could get better at that part of it, I think you're going to see this farm system just continue that upward trajectory. So the big thing with Parada for law, he just doesn't view him as a catcher. It felt like, and but he did kind of compliment that side that he's a good athlete that he can maybe play elsewhere. If not just have the DH, I thought the Ramirez write-up was very interesting because to me, Joe, and I know you've described him this way, even before he was on the radar or the national radar, He's kind of the wild card of the Mets system because he's 20 years old. He's a really big kid, 6'3", 196 pounds. He's probably only going to gain more muscle being only 20 years old and having that kind of frame. I think what jumped out to me on Law's write-up is the fact that he said he has he's a plus runner with elite instincts in center field. And, and I think this is a Mets system that, yeah, they got Nimmo here for a really long time. But when you get down to the nitty-gritty, Nimmo, it would be great if Nimmo's your above average center fielder for, let's call it half of the deal, right? And then when Ramirez is, say, 24, 25, if he could be your center fielder of the future, even if he is a guy that he's not an all or nothing guy, but he still needs some polish at the plate, it seems like. But to have that defensive upside in the system, especially after trading Pete Crow Armstrong, where you don't want to trade center field talent, true center field talent 
it sounds like Ramirez might be able to fill that void down the road. He definitely can. And I said this when we were at the Queens baseball convention, I think this time next year, we're talking about Alex Ramirez as a top 25 prospect in the sport. I'm that confident in his skill set. Uh, when you think of how he plays, uh, how he plays center field, not comparing him to Beltron. So don't get it like that. But when you watch Beltron play center, it looked like he was just casually gliding to every yeah. single ball and got to everything. Ramirez has a little bit of that to his center field play. It doesn't look like it's, you know, a struggle for him to get to balls gap to gap and chase balls down. So I think he's a true center fielder going forward. Uh, he does need some work on his pitch recognition skills. Uh, not quite like Mauricio, like he's ahead of where Mauricio was at the same age. And, you know, he could trim down the strikeout rate a little bit. He's got to work on his swing plane a little bit. Is something that Keith commented on, which is something I've also heard. Because uh, as you get to the upper levels, that swing plane, can, if it gets a little flat, that kind of does sap a little of your power. Uh, so it, as long as the Mets continue to work at it and he has the work ethic to work through it, uh, the Mets certainly have a prospect here in Ramirez that I think could be uh, a special type of player that could be, like you said, that center fielder of the future. And boy, I wish they had Pete Armstrong because you watch that guy play center field. That's like that's multi-time gold glove winning center field defense. That's not just good defense. The reality is, if they had Crow Armstrong, I don't know if a Nimmo, the urgency to get that kind of Nimmo deal done ultimately happens, which is a very interesting uh, scenario that is still not a written story. We'll see how that plays out. And the last thing for me in this one was about Brett Beatty. Not only did he have Brett Beatty at 31, and he seemed, Keith Law seemed pretty confident in Brett Beatty as a player as a whole, both defensively and offensively. The second to last known here, Joe, that Keith, that Keith wrote was the Mets should just give him 500 at-bats this year as there's nothing left for him to learn in the minors, and he's by far their best option there. I thought that was a hidden strong stance from Keith Law that I think a lot of the fan base might agree with. We like Escobar on this show. I think Escobar is more suited as ideally a role player for the Mets, whether that is situational hitting, whether that is a little DHing. Obviously, a little playing third base, a little playing second base. We know in a pinch he could play shortstop in an emergency situation. But do you agree that the Mets should just commit to Beatty, don't feel that he's going to really gain anything from being in AAA for most of the year? And 500 at-bats doesn't mean Beatty has to start in the major leagues. It means he has to get up there pretty damn quick. But at the end of the yeah. day, Joe, are you in line with this thinking that at 23 years old, a clear opening at third base for the Mets that they should commit to Beatty. I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world for him to get a little more AAA time. Like when, when he got called up, it was he basically had, he had five or six games, I think, of AAA work. So I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world to kind of give the nod to Escobar out the gate, let Beatty go beat up in AAA Syracuse and and come up and get that opportunity. And you know whether that's April 1st, April 15th, April 20th, mid-May, late May, whatever, Brett Beatty is going to play a meaningful role on the 2023 Mets. And I do wonder, and I don't think they'd ever say this, but there is an incentive in baseball now. If you call up a top 100 prospect, have him on your opening day roster, and he wins rookie of the year, you get a compensatory pick at the end of the first round of the MLB draft. So the Mariners with uh, Julio Rodriguez got the 29th pick in the 2023 draft for carrying Rodriguez opening day and him winning rookie of the year. 
So they probably would never say anything about this, but I would love to ask, does something like that play at all a role or is it purely just when he's ready, he's ready? And, you know, maybe Keith is right. Maybe Beatty's ready to roll. I think when we get to St. Lucie, uh, we'll, we'll have a better look at him, I think. And he's already there to his credit. So that's something that's really exciting is that Beatty has been in St. Lucie for a little over a week now. So he's getting early, early, early wear. What a story it would be if Brett Beatty went on to win the NL Rookie of the Year after the Carlos Correa deal fell through. I think that would be a lot of fun to cover and a lot of fun to watch. And Joe, that rule would have helped when Pete Alonso won the Rookie of the Year in 2019 because we've seen the Mets take that risk before without the incentive of maybe getting that compensatory selection. So I really like that rule change. I think it's a lot of fun for baseball. I think it's good for the Players Association and for the young guys to have any kind of better shot at sticking to the roster uh, against a lot of the financial motives that can keep them off the rosters at times. So absolutely a big fan of that. All right, everybody, you are listening to the Mets pod. Subscribe to the Mets pod, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can consistently watch the show on SMY's YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Joe, let's get into the mailbag this week. You got a lot of good questions. If you want to, if you're wondering how do I send a question and, and get the question on the show at PSL to flushing is Joe's handle on Twitter. I'm at Connor J Rogers. Just tweeted at us. Joe sends a tweet out every single week and there's quite the thread of great questions in there. And we will start out with this first one from Alex Cohen at a Cohen LFGM. I'm assuming the Mets are going to put up a banner for the 2022 season like they did after 2016, but I don't know how I feel about it. While I agree a postseason appearance should be celebrated, I'm curious to hear if you guys think the Mets will eventually take the Yankee approach. Joe, what do you think of postseason appearance celebrations i i mean i thought they should have celebrated in person right at the end of the year like they kind of did i thought that was that was well handled but i don't need a banner up there to say they made the wild card in 2022 like i don't need that like we're good i think banners should be division winner um nationally pennant and world series those should be the only um, things that get those are the only things that should get banners. So, yeah, I, I'm good if they don't put up a wild card banner. I know they did previously, but maybe that does change. And, you know, if if they're listening, uh, we don't need to have a big unveiling of a banner that the Mets made the wild card round and, and lost to the Padres. So let's let's go ahead and scrap that idea and let's keep it to division pennant World Series. It's it's kind of a random eyesore. I, I am somebody that has not paid enough attention to this. That's why I flagged this question right away and wanted to get it on the show. And I'm sure there's varying opinions. When you look at City Field, the first one is 69 world champions, 73 nationally champions. Great. 86 world champions, 88 NL East division champions. This is all fine. It's all fine. 99 wild card and division series winners. Little strange. 2000 National League champions, 2006 NL East division champs, totally in line. 2015 National League champs again. 2016 National League wild card. It's the classic. Some of these are not like the others. And my stance is the Mets have enough accolades where it wouldn't look bizarre if you just took those out. It's not like there's no other yeah. banners. The Mets have won two World Series. The Mets have won the National League multiple times as recently as 2015. So I, I'm with you all the way. I'm not a fan of why I, you know what it is for me. And I think this is something that the Mets are significantly going in the right direction with, especially since Cohen has bought the team. 
you have to set a different precedent, right? And setting a precedent or looking back, like people will honestly, if the, say the Mets won a World Series or the National League in the next five years, when would anybody ever think of this last playoff ever again? The only time it would ever come back into your brain in the circumstances when you see that banner that isn't like the others. Yeah. So I'm with you all the way. It's very bizarre. It's not one of those things where you get on and you just kill the Mets for it. But when you do notice it, I just, yeah, I think it's actually unnecessary. So I really liked the, that uh, discussion. The standard has Alex. The, the standard change now, yes. right? Like, I think the yes. standard used to be making the playoffs was this crazy accomplishment because they didn't do it all the time. I think now the playoffs are an expectation and making deep runs in the playoffs now have to be an expectation. You can't put up a 350 plus million dollar payroll and think the expectations don't shift because they do. That's how it works. They absolutely do. The team has been. Uh, invested in unlike any other time we've ever seen before. This next one is from Spooky Mets. Said one of the main themes last offseason was that sometimes the subtractions from a clubhouse can be as important as the additions. Something I've been reminding myself of regularly this year, which subtraction this offseason do you think will have the biggest impact, Joe? I mean, they didn't lose it. They didn't lose a ton of, you know, high impact players, right? I mean, it was bullpen guys and Jacob deGrom. And that's like, that's got to be the answer. What is the impact of losing Jacob deGrom? I don't have the privilege of being around the clubhouse. So right. I don't entirely know what Jacob deGrom's feeling was in that locker room. If he was beloved, if things kind of went sour. I mean, we know with reporters and stuff, Jacob deGrom got a little more distant, uh, certainly this year than he had been previously. Uh, but I, I don't know, like Jacob deGrom, like what's the impact of losing him and replacing him with Verlander? Does that rub people the wrong way? Are some people happy that, you know, Jake is out and Justin's in? I, I have no way of actually knowing that, but I don't think, you know, no offense to Seth Lugo. I don't think losing Seth Lugo is like this detrimental thing to the 2023 clubhouse because Lugo's not a part of it. But obviously Jacob deGrom was a franchise type player and one of the best pitchers in baseball and in Mets franchise history. So him not being there, I'd, I'd be very curious on what that does to the clubhouse dynamic, positive or negative. I think it's the, the main one you have to bring up. I'll go with a more low key one that I think will be a positive. Uh, how about Omar Narvaez for this catching staff and pitching staff? I, I think when you look at Narvaez, do I think he's going to be this massive upgrade over McCann? I can't sit here and confidently say that. He has not been a great offensive player for much of his career. He is one of the better pitch framers in the league. But if Narvaez, listen, you got to look at it like this. Nito, for a long time, has been trying to establish himself as a major leaguer. And I think he's gotten to that point where we look at Tomas Nito and we go, Nito's going to play in the major leagues for a long time. And to his credit, has, has already accomplished that. Narvaez is a guy that I think is going to come in and be excited to work hand in hand with a Francisco Alvarez because he is an established major leaguer um, that I think will understand how to help a young guy handle a veteran high end pitching staff. So if you're looking for one of those positive additions to the clubhouse, I think you have to look to Narvaez and how it'll ultimately impact Francisco Alvarez, even if that isn't the story of spring training, something that could be the story over the next two years. So. Our next question here is from Steven Shine. He said, and I, I am going to answer it right away, Joe. Sorry. He said, who is the Mets' backup first baseman? Even polar bears need a day off occasionally. As it stands right now, Darren Ruff is the Mets' backup first baseman. 
and yes. it's not Vogelback. I guess in theory, I'm sure Jeff McNeil could play first base. Like I, I'm I sure. I think Mark right? didn't didn't Mark Canna play a handful of first base. Mark I think Canna he did. Can, there's he? a lot of guys. Yeah. The Mets are a pretty athletic team. They have a lot of guys yeah. that can do it. But if you were giving Pete a day off and Ruff is on the roster, Darren Ruff is playing first base. As the yeah, player. I think that I think that's pretty much the answer. And uh, yeah, I think this is probably the point where people start yelling at their phones. Oh, or, they, we're or shut off. When we talk, yeah, yes. we're done when you when we start talking about Ruff. But as it stands today, I think it's Darren Ruff or maybe Mark Canna or like you said, could you just jam Jeff McNeil at first base? I'm I'm sure you could. He's athletic enough. He could probably do. He could probably play center field if you really if you I really so. wanted Jeff McNeil to play center for a day. He could. So um, I wouldn't fret too much about polar bear days off. Uh, I would I would maybe have a worry if he was going to miss legitimate time because uh, Pete doesn't really take days off. His days off are DHing. So which he hates. Open. Yeah, hates. he hates DHing. Yeah, which I get. Some people are his numbers people, like utterly insane though as a DH. Yeah, he, yeah, he rakes as a DH, but you know Pete rakes. That's what he does. It's just funny when you look at that. Maybe he'll warm up to the idea. I guess the other wild card, Joe, would be if Bientos just has such a good spring that it would be, you know, there'd be uh, people would be furious if they kept rough over him. And then if you if you ultimately moved rough and Bientos makes the team, Bientos would probably be your backup first baseman, I would think. I know they were mixing his reps in first base when Beatty would start a third in the minors. That's correct, right? Yeah, yeah. Vientos is, in my eyes, a first base DH now. He'll, I'm sure he'll get some third base reps in AAA if that's where he is. But uh, his long term to me is first base DH lefty mashing guy. All right. So I had to pull up Alonzo's DH numbers. Uh, he DH'd in 27 games last year. He had an OPS of 830. So his numbers at first base, in theory, are actually better. But Pete is a good DH. So it is just interesting how persistent he is to that days off and a tip of the cap to Pete that he wants to be out in the field. Some guys are just more engaged in the game um, when they've their entire life have balanced being in the dugout when they're batting and then getting back out to the field every inning. So, you know, to each their own. And that's something that they'll have to hear him out on. Our last one here. This one is from Paul Mund Mundinger. Uh, Paul asked, do you think the Mets will move quickly to trade Nito? Once Alvarez is ready to catch with the lack of options for him and Narvaez promoting Alvarez would require carrying three catchers, which seems like a burden over a long period of time. Joe, we've discussed uh, this scenario, I think plenty of times in a sense where when McCann was on the roster and now that Narvaez is here, it doesn't really change the conversation. Maybe it enhances the conversation because we thought McCann struggled so much. There was a chance the Mets would just ultimately cut ties. In a way, they were able to get some money back by trading him instead. I think the balance is the Mets don't have a typical every game DH that maybe you could carry three because on days Alvarez isn't starting a catcher, he would be the main DH. But what do you think of this scenario and, and how it could impact a guy like Nito, who's now under contract for the next two years at a pretty reasonable market? I think you can pull it off for a period of time. I don't think this three catchers on this roster is something you want to keep for a long time because if Alvarez is not catching, he should not be on the major league team. Point blank, in my opinion. He doesn't need to catch every single day. If he could catch a couple times a week, DH a couple times a week or whatever, I think you can pull that off for a period of time. 
Uh, but eventually you're going to want to turn the reins over to Francisco Alvarez. And when that time comes, by process of elimination, I think Tomas Nito could be a trade candidate. To your point, the contract that he's under, it, they signed him to a two-year deal, which all that really did was just verify his this year and next year arbitration salary because he still had uh, another year of arbitration eligibility after this. So they didn't buy out any free agency. Let me tell you, Tomas Nito would have a trade market. Like teams want defensive catchers and now it's a defensive catcher for $2 million a year. Not saying they'd get, you know, some haul for Nito, but you would get, I think, a, a relatively pre, a relatively good return if you were to shop Nito on the open market. And that could happen. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's a trade deadline thing kind of thing and, and see where see where Alvarez is at defensively. Uh, but there's no doubt that I think Tomas Nito's Mets future is in some way tied to Francisco Alvarez. It's interesting because Nito was a slightly more effective offensive player than Narvaez last year. But you look at the deal the Mets gave Narvaez, he's on a two-year contract, 15 million total. He will take home uh, 8 million of that this year. And then, and then after the that, it's a player option. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, his salary goes down to seven. If Narvaez has a good year, he would opt out, which right. I, I think I don't want to call that a long shot, but I, I it's, it's definitely the lesser, uh, you know, higher chance of happening, I think, in a sense. But if that happened, then you just have Nito and Alvarez in 2024, and your scenario mm -hmm. is very, very easy. If Narvaez opted in, because I think this question is more for 2024 than 2023. Like you said, Joe, they can figure this out in a pinch for a shortened period of time. And if the expectations of Alvarez not being on the opening day roster ultimately come to fruition, then this is probably a 2024 situation where you could see Nito moved next offseason at Narvaez Alvarez show, which is a little disappointing because I, I find myself uh, being a Tomas Nito fan, being a guy that's been here for a long time. He, I have to go back and check when he, he was drafted in the eighth round. So, mm -hmm. I mean, catchers in the eighth round, Joe, it's not every day that they have long major league careers. And he's, while he's not a perfect player, especially offensively, he's somebody that's given the Mets stability defensively as a backup. Nito's been an incredibly valuable draft pick and good player development story and, and all that he's he's going to be in the major leagues for a long time, whether it's with the Mets or somewhere else. Nito's going to be a ten plus year major leaguer, uh, maybe even a little longer. So he has a long career ahead of him, and you know it very well could be with the Mets. Let's look at it this way: we say this all the time. This stuff always works itself out. It's Every not going to be it's not going to be the perfect story where Narvaez and Nito are healthy and performing, and Alvarez is mashing in AAA. And it's just like, what do we do with this surplus of great catchers we have? Like. It all works itself out. Nito's gonna, you know, get hurt, or, or Narvaez is gonna get hurt, and then Alvarez is gonna come up, and maybe he makes a statement. Like this stuff will always shake itself out. But I do think if you want to just play in the idealistic world, uh, something's gonna have to give because three catchers is not a long-term solution for this team. Catchers catching is a taxing position. There are injuries to this position, especially for the Mets, every single year. We saw McCann deal with two really bad luck injuries last year. Like you said, Joe, we've seen Nito hurt. It's a good thing the Mets have this kind of insurance at the position and only help them down the stretch. So, Joe, as we sit here, we're about two weeks away from pitchers and catchers. We're getting closer. We can't wait to cover spring training. Closing thoughts for today's episode of the Mets Pod, the Jeff McNeil extension episode. 
we're ready for spring training and uh shout out uh to Kodai Senga. Um he elected to not partake in the World Baseball Classic. He wants to come to St. Lucie and get acclimated with his team and coaching staff and everything. So, uh you're going to get a full spring of Kodai Senga, which I think is is huge. Um I know Yoshida who signed with the Red Sox is doing the opposite. He's actually going to play for Team Japan in the WBC. So it's a good thing that Senga's going to be in St. Lucie full-time for the entire uh, entire spring training with Hefner and and uh, the bullpen coach and get acclimated with the catchers and Verlander and Scherzer and all that. And, man, I'll tell you, he's got some sick gloves that he's coming with. That, that blue glove with the ghost fork on it and Senga using the three as the E and the four as the A at the end, uh, some fire equipment coming with Kodai and, you know, really excited to see what he brings this spring. Me too. And it's great to hear that he will be at Port St. Lucie, get on page with the training staff, the uh, taxing nature of a MLB season, a first MLB season for Senga. I think it's the right move as much as I'm sure he would love to represent his country. Uh, and we would root for him either way with either decision. This is great news for the Mets and we can't wait to see him on any mound down in Florida. So, with that, that is the a uh, another edition of the Mets Pod. We will be back next week, and we will be back pretty much every week since the throughout spring training, throughout the start of the season. We will be here with you, and we're very excited for that. So thank you, and a reminder to subscribe to us so you never miss a show. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SMYZ YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll catch you next week.